Sometimes life sends us on an unexpected path. We're faced with a set of circumstances that shape our futures in ways we don't expect. The diversity of the human race allows for many paths and many journeys. One such journey belongs to Christopher Howard. He is in the final stages of becoming a neuropsychologist with a focus on health disparities. My conversation with him was extraordinarily enlightening and the knowledge I gained invaluable. This conversation will spark thoughts and ideas regarding your Alzheimer's journey. Perhaps you'll discover something that affects you directly, allowing you to make a change, or maybe you'll simply gain an understanding for the different Alzheimer's and dementia journeys that face others. Christopher's enthusiasm for this specific specialty of care will inspire you and give you hope for a better future for people at the beginning of their journey with this disease. Welcome to Fading Memories, a supportive podcast for those of us caring for a loved one with memory loss. Are you following us on social media? If you're not, you definitely should. I post things daily, helpful information, cute dog photos, and more. Also, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube page, Fading Memories Podcast. I post specific bonus content on YouTube that you will not get anywhere else. Enough of the sales pitch. Now let's get on to the show. With me today on the podcast is Christopher Howard. He is studying... I'm going to let him tell you what he's studying, but we're going to talk about a little different topic today. So thanks for joining me, Christopher, almost called you Howard. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I go by many names. (laughs) I can relate. (laughs) So tell everybody exactly what you're getting your doctorate in. Okay. Well, first, I want to say thank you for having me. I really appreciate this. And this is my first podcast. I'm a little nervous. So um, I'll try to keep the ums and uh, stuttering just a little bit. I'll try to keep it down. But I'm earning my doctorate in clinical psychology with a specialization in neuropsychology with an emphasis on cognitive aging and health disparity. Okay. So what is the difference between psychology and neuropsychology? That's a great question. Um, Psychology kind of just, you know, it's kind of like talk therapy where you talk with somebody, you get to uh, their inner sanctum. And where neuropsychology, we really look at like brain behavior relationships and we look at how different things can affect the brain. And subsequently, it just affects like their cognitive functioning. So it's a little bit more the medical side, but there's still there's still a therapeutic side to it as well that's interesting I know when my mom was going through the testing and it's been so long now I can't remember if it was when she was being tested to donate a kidney to my dad or if it was the testing to find out specifically what was wrong with her she had a neuropsychologist told us she was fine which she was not There was a three-year difference between the kidney testing for the, you know the kidney donation testing and the diagnosis of Alzheimer's. And by the time she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, it was like, duh, it was it was so far da- she was so far down the pathway of that disease that you know most people would have realized what was going on. Well, you know, and that's what makes it that's what makes it so tricky. I mean, generally that's what makes mental health so tricky. I mean, like if I sprain my ankle, if I broke my arm, broke my leg or something like that, I could go to a physician, we can look at it, we can repair it and I can have some semblance of a normal life. 
And sometimes with neuropsych, particularly when you look at cognitive aging, it's kind of saying, duh, like you already know this. But just to take a step further, sometimes what we do is that we kind of look at the trajectory because not all dementia is built the same, if you will. And so sometimes when we do neuropsych testing, sometimes you just need the documentation that this is happening. Or sometimes you're looking for different deficits because it's not necessarily about having a deficit or not having a deficit, but it's like, what does that deficit look like? What is the trajectory? Can this person still live independently? Do we need to take the keys away from them? Like what sort of recommendations or ramifications can we make? Because a lot of times people are like, well, okay, my loved one or my significant other or whomever, whomever the case may be, has this disorder and that's it. But it's just like, what recommendations can we do that can make the quality of life better? That makes sense because unfortunately these days, and it's changing slowly, obviously you're going to be part of the change, is some doctors won't even tell you, oh yeah, you've got dementia or Alzheimer's because most people are like, and they're not 100% wrong, it's like, well, there's nothing we can do, so why tell people? Well, there's a lot of reasons why to tell them. Care planning, estate planning, all these things are important. And then, you know, a lot of people are told what's going on and they just, they go into denial, which is what my parents did. Absolutely. It's tough. I mean, honestly, it's tough. I mean, but the one of, I guess one of the biggest things is like neuropsych doesn't necessarily operate in a vacuum and there's like a litany of resources that are associated with us. So if you ever receive a neuropsychological evaluation towards the end, there's like a number of recommendations that because I'm a doctoral student, I can't say that we, but that neuropsycholo- neuropsychologists recommend and stuff, which 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 gives access to healthcare. Um, sometimes I don't. A lot of times, because we're not speaking absolutisms, but a lot of times people don't understand the whole dynamics of Alzheimer's, and they just think, okay, somebody's just losing their memory, and that's it. But a lot of times, there's a lot of behavioral changes, or sometimes dementia uh, is attributable to a stroke or different other things, and it, messes, and it disrupts the way that they walk, and they may have fall precautions and different things of the sort. So there's still utility in receiving a neuropsychological evaluation. And What? Um, Go ahead. And so also like a huge component that I've always, um, always, uh, you know, prefer to do is a lot of times it's about psychoeducation. And so to a certain extent, this is where the psych- psychology comes in, because it's not necessarily just about the loved one who's developed Alzheimer's or dementia, or whatever the case may be. But it's about the caregivers, because sometimes when you take care of a loved one, now you isolate yourself from financial resources, um, of financial resources, sometimes friends and family, social resources, sometimes even spiritual resources. And next thing you know, the caregiver begins to develop their own sort of psychopathology. So that's kind of like where the psychology comes in, and there's still utility in it. That sounds really interesting. I never knew exactly what a neuropsychologist did. I just knew the one that evaluated my mom. I don't know if she baffled him into thinking she was fine. I'm not sure how the whole testing works. Is it just talking or no. is there? Um, well, the way that it works is like, it's a, we call it a battery. And what a battery is, is like, it's a litany of different tests. And the test is like looking for strength and weaknesses in an individual's intellectual and cognitive functioning and sometimes behavior assessment. And ideally what ends up happening is that 
you see like a pattern or deficits and you see like the pattern deficits, you can kind of localize where that dysfunction's at. And when you localize what that dysfunction usually corroborates or disabuse what um, the illness may be. <laughs> I get those dings a lot. <laughs> um, I think the neuropsychologist that she saw was during the testing to see if she could donate a kidney to my dad because my assumption is if they were doing the testing for her memory problems, they wouldn't have said she was okay. So I'm thinking there must have been slightly different focus on the testing. And that's why he said she was okay. Because even my daughter, who was 16 at the time, knew that my mom was not okay. And obviously, she's almost 77 and has advanced Alzheimer's. She's in very late stages of it. Obviously, she wasn't okay, <laughs> even if that was uh, 11 years ago. We've been on this path a long time. <laughs> sure. It's, it's, it's a tough path. So you're, you're doing the neuropsychology. Now, what's the other pieces of your doctoral studies? Uh, health disparity and cognitive aging. Um, and that's a little bit more ancillary than like something that you would actually take a class. But... Um, you know, I really had a wonderful opportunity just to work with uh, the people at Rush Alzheimer's Center, uh, Emory, their Alzheimer's Center and stuff. And, and like they have these pockets and this focus that really they're really geared towards community outreach and like really ingratiating themselves in the community. And that's when I really said, not only do I want to do neuropsych, but there's something special about health disparity. And uh, I've been in pursuit of it ever since. So explain to me. I mean, I can take a guess, but tell everybody what, exactly what you mean by health disparity. Um, health disparity is like not having equal access to health resources. And sometimes um, when health resources aren't readily, it's something about being readily available. Sometimes what it is, it's like sometimes individuals, it becomes a cumbersome process because it's like, okay, well, I know my loved one is changing and they're going through these changes and I want to do everything correctly, but where would I go in my community where I could receive help, where I could get quality help, where I could just find something out? And a lot of times they're mental, I call them mental health deserts, where you could go for miles and miles and not have any adequate mental health resources. Um, so that's what health disparities is. And when you don't have equal access to help, then it kind of proliferates like just the illness, just the sickness, because, and I'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit later, but uh, illness doesn't happen in a vacuum. And there's so many mediating and moderating factors that contribute to a person's well-being that it's just kind of like talking about health disparities. You talk, like, we can talk about health health disparities, if I don't get tongue-tied, right? When you talk about <laughs> health disparities, you're looking at access to quality food, you're looking at access to health resources, you're looking at support systems. So, I mean, it's a, it's, it's an interesting thing, because, like, the more you ingratiate yourself into it, the more interesting it becomes, the more deficits that you realize exist. So the health disparity, the deficits, those are, would you say those happen more in, like, the rural... Like I would assume, you know, I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area. I would, I know we don't have a health deficit out here between UC Davis and UC San Francisco and Stanford. There's a lot of Alzheimer's research just here in my little neck of the woods. But I would think going north, where it's more rural, more, uh, well, it was forested, but we, <laughs> once again, having fires, the state's flaming up again. 
um, I would assume that smaller population areas have less resources. Is that true? Yes and no. I mean, it really kind of depends on like the economic situation of certain areas and stuff too, because you could have like isolated areas, but they have a direct access to resources and different things that's geared towards them. So again, we're not talking about absolutisms and stuff, but a lot of times when you're in like a really urban environment, that's when things really tend to proliferate. Like I remember being in Chicago uh, while I was working on my doctorate and Chicago was kind of like the hotbed of neuropsychology. And, but you wouldn't be able to find, like aside from like the Illinois Medical District, which is like kind of the outskirts of downtown. But once you get past, and I remember my mentor was telling me like, once you like leave the Illinois Medical District, the next street over is a different zip code. And the life expectancy of those people in the next zip code drops by like 10 or 12 years. Um, so I said that to say, it's like a lot of times, like, and you, and when you understand about how dementia and Alzheimer's is different in people of color, where African-Americans develop Alzheimer's at a rate that's like three to four times higher than white individuals, Hispanics develop uh, Alzheimer's at a rate that's maybe like one and a half to two times higher than white individuals. But you don't have a neuropsychologist in the west side of town, west side of Chicago, or in the south side of Chicago, like granted, like yes, you have like University of Chicago, University of Chicago, which is in Hyde Park, but the city of Chicago goes down to like the 120 streets. So it's like even if I wanted to go there, I might have to take two buses and a train or two trains and a bus, and it becomes a cumbersome process to get there. Then if I get there and I do neuropsych testing for four or five hours, and I have to take another two trains or another bus to get back home that even though there's something in close proximity, it's such a cumbersome process to get there that sometimes it trumps the utilization of having that resource. So that's kind of like what I talk about with like disparity. And even to take it a step further, sometimes it's kind of like you don't know what you don't know. Like it could be such a formidable process. Um, when I used to do community outreach, like I started an organization uh, advocates for community wellness. Well, uh, Mrs. Dale Kane, she helped me start it. We started together. And what we would do is that we would go out to some of Chicago's most underserved neighborhoods, most underserved communities, and we would promote uh, health and wellness, nutrition, uh, because you don't know what you don't know, right? And a lot of the questions that we would get was like, well, we want to do this, but we don't know who to talk to, what questions to ask. There's nobody asking. And this is not to cast aspersions on these facilities, but these are just some of these stories that I've seen. We don't know and nobody reflects us, different things and stuff like that. And that would be such a formidable process. A lot of people will say, I could do better all by myself. And it's like, you really cannot. And it's important that you utilize these resources. But even more important than that you utilize these resources, it's important that you know how to utilize these resources. And those are some of the things that people really commit to doing. It's like really getting these communities, really promoting this, and really asking these questions. And a lot of times we will do a lot of faith-based faith based work where we would go to churches and we would through the gamuts of churches. And we would talk and we would really get in the trenches and stuff. And I remember I hosted an event called The Power Three where we would talk about dementia, we talked about food nutrition, and we talked about depression. And I said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring some of my mental health clinical friends to the church. So that way you don't have to leave your comfort zone and nothing's going on paper, nothing's anything of the sort. But ask these questions to some of these mental health professionals, and that way you can feel comfortable utilizing mental health help. That makes sense. That sounds fantastic. 
Are you still doing that or uh, your studies are sucking up all your time? Not, not so much in Provo, um, Provo, Utah. I just moved out to Provo, Utah to complete my internship. And that's like the last leg of the race before I officially become Dr. Howard, before I become Dr. Howard. Um, so the most recent thing that I did was um, I hosted an event in East Atlanta. And it was, it was an amazing event. I mean, the community really came out. The church really came out. People were excited. People were telling their friends. And not that we were going to shut the door on people, but, you know, so many people were coming in. We were just like, oh, maybe we need to move to a different room. And how are we going to squeeze people in? And, you know, Dr. Monica Parker, which is one of my mentors, phenomenal, phenomenal, phenomenal Alzheimer's researcher. She presented and she spoke and uh, she believed in me so much that, you know, they did it for free. So, I mean, it was, it was, it was an exciting time. Um, so yeah, I mean, just like the more you do these events and the more that you engage with people, the more you really see the whole community aspect of Alzheimer's or the whole community aspect of dementia. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's an exciting time. Just to kind of play off on that and slightly in a different vein, taking care of my mom and I always like to take her out to watch kids go to the park, enjoy nature. She's always better when we've had sunshine and kid watching and all that good stuff. And then taking her to the doctors and all the normal stuff. But holy Toledo, man, our communities are not set up for people with disabilities, people with health issues like Alzheimer's, because like I'm in a, a suburb of San Francisco and it is literally like, I think it's 2.8 miles from my house to the grocery store and it's up a hill. I'm a cyclist. <laughs> so, you know, I, I could be all real green and, you know, go to the, ride my bike to the grocery store, but I am not bright dragging this stuff up the hill. I can barely drag my butt up the hill. <laughs> and it's, I'm become much more aware of how challenging traditional suburbs, which where a lot of, you know, senior citizens live are just completely, not good. If you can't drive, you're kind of SOL. And I would assume it's kind of the same issue with what you're talking about, the health disparities. Yeah, uh, you're right. Like, you know, when, when we talk about disparities, like granted my emphasis, my focus tends to be on mental health and different things, but a lot of places to live in food deserts, you know? So you go miles and miles before you have access to quality and healthy food. Um, so, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's tough and hopefully it's changing. And sometimes mental health is so nebulous, right? When you talk about mental health, a lot of times it's interconnected, but people just say mental health and they think it's like a one size fits all, but it's a little, it's a little bit more nuanced than that. And I think people don't really deal with it until they have to. And when they have to, sometimes they're not, Prepared because what you find with a lot of people is they say, I know the statistics, but hopefully it won't be me. And ideally, like people can start making things that's a little bit more accommodative uh, for people with Alzheimer's and caregiving, you know, and, and it goes back to psychoeducation. So I'm not going to belabor the point, but another one of my mentors, Dr. Goldie Bird, she has this wonderful caregiver conference in North Carolina. She has um, this um this program called Coach, which she let me uh, do a fellowship and it was probably one of the better fellowships of my life, but a center for outreach, Alzheimer's, aging, community health. 
And what ends up happening is like all these churches and these people throughout North Carolina, South Carolina, Southern Virginia come down to Greensboro. And it's a conference to teach people how to deal with loved ones who are developing Alzheimer's, who have Alzheimer's, and how to make certain special accommodations for them. Um, So, you know, I think that's a part of it is just finding people who are willing to advocate so we can resolve a lot of these a lot of these hardships. Because it affects everybody. It's not just the loved one. Like, and as crazy as it sounds, it's like the loved ones who progress with the disease. Like, I guess to a certain extent, they have the disease, but we're the people who are dealing with it. And how do we manage? How do we help ourselves or help other loved ones in our family and stuff? So that's why advocacy is so important and knowing how to help. Now, I didn't ask this when I first introduced you. Do you have somebody in your family with Alzheimer's or dementia? Great question. Uh, I know my grandfather. I was so young when when uh, when he was developing Alzheimer's uh, or dementia. I mean, because you really didn't know because it was such a cumbersome process trying to get him to the hospital. And you start thinking, like, from his generation, he grew up in the Deep South. Um, they didn't always have access to doctors. And so if you kind of grow up without going to the doctors, like when something, when an ailment happens, going to a doctor is not like the first thing that you consider, you know, family lore, like, I guess he broke his leg when he was younger and he would drive between South Bend and Chicago with a broken leg. Like that's family lore. But what we do know is that he did have like maybe two heart attacks, Um, you know, I don't think we, I don't think he had a stroke, but if you understand how cardiovascular disease impacts dementia and stuff like that, well, I say all that to say, because I'm getting off the point, is that we didn't know because he wouldn't go to the doctor and stuff like that, but we saw the drain that it took in the family because you hear stories about him warning off or sometimes him blurting different things out and him doing whatever the case may be and how much of a struggle was for my grandma to kind of help take care of him. Because something that a lot of people don't think about in terms of dementia sometimes is gender roles. Um, who's going to help out? Not not to say that she wasn't capable or anything like that, but what I'm saying is who's going to help pick up the slack and who's going to do different other things. And, you know, because, you know, when one person becomes compromised, somebody else has to take up the work. And so sometimes we just don't consider gender roles and different things and stuff like that. So, yeah. So I think that was one of the things that really first started inspiring me because it gave me an opportunity to say, I see what's going on. How can I put myself in a position to rectify the situation? That's awesome. Mm-hmm. I started this podcast because caregivers end up, they end up very isolated. And I'm in a Alzheimer's support group through the Alzheimer's Association. And I know there's a few of us that are like every month regulars. It's, it almost takes an act of God not to show up. But for other people, it's very hard for them to get there because they got to find somebody to take care of their person while they're there. And sometimes they're just exhausted. They don't want to deal with it. And the one thing I did find is that there are tons of resources, but it's it's not something that you immediately turn to. Like, you know, my grandmother, my maternal grandmother also had memory issues. It was either from an aneurysm that leaked for three months or it was undiagnosed Alzheimer's. And my maternal great-grandmother also had no memory the end of her life. So I had it a little bit better, quote unquote, because I saw what was going on with my grandmother. And I also saw this, the denial from my mom, that was frustrating, but at least I knew kind of what to deal with, but not really. 
And it wasn't until after my dad died in March of 2017, I was trying to connect better with my mom. I'd go visit with her and it was just like, and you just want to bang your head on the wall because just, she'd ask you the same question every, it, at that point it was about every five minutes. Now it's, oh, it's like less than two minutes. And it's always the same thing. Well, what have you been up to lately? And how's your family? And because she doesn't remember I'm her daughter, when I answer the questions honestly, yeah. accurately, she looks at me like I've got rocks in my head. It's it's kind of funny and super frustrating all at the same time. So I was going online, looking and looking and looking for ways to connect. You know, they say, oh, you know, take old photo albums. That was a bust. Everything I tried was a bust. And it wasn't until I started really looking that I was like, there's a lot of stuff out there that I never, and you'd think I would have heard about it between my mom and my grandmother. My great-grandmother died before I was born. So I was surprised at how many resources were available once you knew where to look. So I'm trying to fix the where to look issue. It's like, as long as somebody finds me, there's a whole huge doorway to lots of, lots of resources and lots of information. And that was the whole point of the podcast. So that was one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you. That's so awesome. I mean, no, I think think that's really, really good. I think that's really, really good. Well, it's been it's been very beneficial for me, that's for sure. <laughs> you no, know, I mean just being able to help people find resources. I mean, because a lot of times I find like sometimes people like really feel like they're on an island, and when they have resources, it it really helps them bring them back to other groups of people and have a support system and different things of the sort, which which is really really good because you don't you don't want to be on an island because sometimes people become frustrated and when they don't know what to do, sometimes that's when you start seeing like elderly abuse because they become frustrated, things aren't working. Sometimes like the the loved one who has Alzheimer's or dementia says some heinous things and they lash out and it hurts and they don't know how to process or deal with the grief. So finding ways to get people information and reconnected really pays off dividends. Yeah, my mom's getting to the point where she she gets verbally hostile. She needs a lot more hands-on help, but she does not want it. And I'm actually talking to another guest tomorrow about beha- how to handle different behaviors. So that one is definitely one we're going to bring up because she gives the caregivers issues. She gives me issues and I'm I'm a little more patient. I'll let her struggle through trying to get her pants on. Cause I know if I jump in, she just swats me away. Like I'm sort of annoying bug. It's that's really irritating. So I know not to jump in on her because I upset her and it upsets me. And I try to kind of, you know, let her get as far along as she can and then kind of just help. Like the other day she was trying to pull up the, the underwear pull-ups and why she crosses her legs to put on pants, I don't have a clue. I'm going to have to try sitting down and crossing my legs, you know, the way women do, and see how difficult it is to put on my pants without a broken brain. But she was trying to put on, you know, pull up her underwear and just just all this verbalization of frustration. And I had told her, now I'm right here if you need my help. And I didn't say anything. And I just let her struggle and struggle and struggle. And she was like really close. And I'm like, you're really close. Just, just gotta get your toes through the hole. And 
you know, but as soon as I got down there to help her, hi, 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 it's just, you know, it's like, I'm just trying to help you. <laughs> but I know getting upset with her is completely the worst thing to do. And it's very difficult. And then she got really upset. Apparently the caregivers probably don't have as much time to fuss through getting clothes on. And so they, they get a little bit more hands-on. And she's like, I just get so pissed off when people try to help. And she left her room. And we went from mid to low 80s to seven, like high 60s, low 70s in overnight, practically. So I was like, oh, I better bring her her winter clothes back, which I know Northern California, you guys are like laughing at me, especially if you're from Chicago. It's like, and so I'm just, I'm hanging up her stuff on the, in the closet. She stomps out and I'm like, whatever, I'm going to keep doing what I got to do. And she came back. And I think because I was there, she was like, oh, my best friend's here. Okay. Life's okay. It was very interesting because it took a lot of mental strength to just not react to her getting grumpy with me, getting hostile with me. But yeah, it's very hard. My dad was not good at that. He, she would ask him a question, he'd answer her, she'd ask it again, and he'd immediately just go into irritated, kind of verbally abusive tone of voice, which always frustrated me. So it is a challenge. Now, in your studying, mm -hmm. have you, I know there's a, well, they think, like, obviously, they've got kind of taken a step back and, you know, they say, it's like our favorite words, diet and nutrition, like, you were talking about cardiovascular health and how whatever's heart healthy is also good for your brain. Right. So have you noticed in your studies that there's a bigger, there's more people with the disease or showing signs of the disease in areas where you, like you said, is a food desert? Man, you know, great question. Um, you know, so funny. Um, there's a, there's this, uh, it's, a, it's a certain type of diet and the name is eluding me. There's the mind yes, diet and the mind dash. diet, the mind diet and stuff like that, and people are like really emphasizing the mind diet, but like with a lot of things, like nothing really works in a vacuum because you can really eat healthy, but if you have like a lot of chronic stress or different things of the sort, then sometimes that undermines the benefits of the diet. Um, also, something that we kind of realized also, and it goes back to teaching, is like you could take a group of, and sometimes this, we, we used to call it ideational constrictions at Emory, but what an ideational constriction is, is like, you know something, so everything else that you do around it gravitates back to that one thing that you know, and so sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't, so it's almost like if I'm building a house, and all I have is a hammer, there's certain things that really work great with a hammer, but some things need a screwdriver, some things need a saw, and if I use a hammer, then I feel miserably. So that's kind of what ideational constrictions is. So when I say ideational constrictions in terms of diet and nutrition, like sometimes you could bring somebody, because like when you're in the food desert, a lot of times you could go to like a corner store and they might have an apple, but they have like a laundry list of like unhealthy food. But you could take somebody to like a Whole Foods or wherever and, okay, you get all the healthy food, the nutritious food, but they don't know how to cook it. They don't know how to use it. Then it's just like, what's the point of doing it? Plus, a lot of times healthy food is a little bit more expensive than regular food. So it costs a little bit more and it perishes a lot quicker. So then it's just like, let me gravitate back toward this food. I know it's not healthy, but it lasts a little bit longer and it feeds more people. 
it tastes better sometimes. <laughs> it tastes better too, you know, because a lot of times you work with blended families. Um, so I saw that to say, but also like there's a thing called the stroke belt, which is like Georgia, South Carolina, Tennessee, Alabama, Mississippi, Arkansas, Louisiana, and a little bit of Texas, a little bit of Texas. And they have a higher proclivity of strokes. A lot of times it's attributable to food and nutrition. And if your person lives in a stroke belt, I think it's like 19%. If you're a white American, then you have a 19% higher rate of developing Alzheimer's. And if you're African-American, it's like a 29% higher rate of developing Alzheimer's. Um, so, yeah, I mean, food has a huge part to do with it, but it's not just food, but it's also your lifestyle. Like, if you look at, like, maybe the 30s and the 40s, where, you know, we were agriculture heavy and I was working in the fields and I was doing different things, but kind of like as this whole... Uh, engineer boom or i guess um the words eluded me but like when things begin the whole industrial boom right so now you have right. people who eat the same way but they have sedimentary jobs so they're not really burning off you know that fat and the salts and the sugars and different things and stuff like that so that's when it really starts to become problematic and it's really trying to address those things that makes sense one thing I didn't understand about, the, I don't understand about the South, why they like fried food so much. It is hot and sticky down there. <laughs> I think they'd want salad. <laughs> oh, I mean, we get hot here. We don't get sticky. Okay. I was watching the news the other day. They were talking about how we we're going to have our high winds and our low humidity. I'm like, that's all we ever have. Is, it could be raining and we have low humidity. <laughs> that's Northern California for you. So that's interesting, though. I don't know why I never put the sedentary or maybe it just the way you worded it was better, but the, the desk jobs and not burning off the fats and the salts. I mean, I know you're not burning off the calories, but that's a different yeah. viewpoint is the fat and the salt. Uh, most regular listeners will know that I think it's been 11 years. I went on a, a journey to lose a hundred pounds mm. because my dad's side of the family has huge um, risk of diabetes. He had diabetes. I think all three of my dad and his brothers all have diabetes. I know he and the other one of them do, but I'm pretty sure all three do. And I had a client that told me at the time, you're overweight, you have a ha family history of diabetes, you're screwed, which those were good words because yeah. you tell me I'm screwed, I'm going to tell you I'm not. Absolutely. And it took, it took a lot of effort. And after turning 50, it's taking a lot more effort to keep it off, which is super frustrating. But then I've now learned how much better that is for my brain, which is terrific. I'm hoping, because I take after my dad's side of the family, I, I have less risk of the Alzheimer's that seem to be on my mom's side of the family. I'm praying. <laughs> but I work out probably six days a week, ride my bike, do weights. I do all that stuff. So I do everything I can. It's good you know, to, to stay as healthy as possible. Dynamic learning is also very good. Um, I love it when I've struggled through a problem and then I've come, even if I don't always get the solution, it's like, yeah. you can almost feel your brain is just like energized. That's one of the greatest joys in life is like accomplishing a difficult task. Now, in all the studies you've done, have you, have, has anybody found a reason why African-Americans are more susceptible to Alzheimer's than Hispanics and whites? Because I just... I don't understand. I don't think physically the brains are different. So is it um, 
cultural? You know what? Great, great questions. I mean, all that's really great. I mean, what we could have known so far is we're going to start like kind of basic and stuff. It's like there's two different gene sets. With white Americans, it's apple oil protein on the Leo 4. And it's like two copies. Like you could have like one copy of Leo 4 or it could be like a double copy where you have like two Leo 4s and stuff. So the more Leo 4s that you have, for white people, like that's what's the genesis of their Alzheimer's. And so I was kind of doing like a little bit of research because I was like, I know there's a different gene set and I kind of know about ABCA7 for African-Americans, which is like the ATP binding cassette on the subset of the family seven. But I was like, well, what's the deal with apoloprotein or ApoE4? And, you know, I found something kind of interesting, like because African-Americans who have ApoE4, they don't significantly have a higher rate of Alzheimer's. Other data is intermittent and stuff. But what we also find is that Nigerians have like some of the, among the highest rates of ApoE4 in the world. And what they found is like ApoE4, if I could keep saying it without getting tongue twisted, but ApoE4, what they found is like, it is, it gets rid of malaria. Like it's a natural protection against malaria and a lot of places around the world that has like a high rate of malaria also has a high rate of ApoE4 so in a way I guess it's kind of a protective factor uh, against Alzheimer's in African Americans granted that I'm sorry that's super interesting so it's it's a biological like cultural change it's like an evolutionary change that's interesting it is because I've never I've never seen anything that says that. So that's cool. I was kind of I was doing a research and I was starting to get into like because African Americans have like a sickle sickle cell trait that partially do with malaria from when African Americans were in Africa. But I was like, you know what? I'm not a geneticist, so I'm gonna ease up on this and stuff. But I mean, it's really fascinating. African American stuff. We have ABCA7, which is a different gene set. So essentially, is phagocytic, and what it does is that it kind of clears out the brain. Like, uh, and one of the hallmarks of Alzheimer's is amyloid beta protein. And essentially, amyloid beta protein kind of serves a function, even if it's removed, but within regulation, it's not necessarily a bad thing uh, because it helps regulate cholesterol, it's a transcription factor, and helps with phosphorylation. Um, But what ends up happening is like when a person is under chronic stress, and what we found is that people who perceive racism, at the end of their life, they have a form of mild kind of impairment. So just the perception of racism stuff. So essentially what it goes back to is that we're kind of looking at chronic stress. And so what, what happens with chronic stress is that the body has inflammation. And so what ABC7 does is that it's trying to clear out all the gooky stuff, if you will. And because it's chronic stress, it keeps promoting different, it keeps promoting inflammation. So what ends up happening is that ABCA7, it gives, it, turns pro-inflammatory because basically it's like we need reinforcement and stuff like that and it can't work as well and what ends up happening is like proliferation of amyloid beta protein through chronic stress so that's kind of how it works with african-americans in addition um glucocorticoid which is also a steroid is used to help kind of put out the fire if you will put out the inflammation and it has receptors the hippocampus has receptors for the glucocorticoid so it kind of works in this 
this arching fashion where when it works well and the stress is over with, the fire's been put out, so forth, so on. But when chronic stress persists, what ends up happening is that it does damage to the hippocampi. And if you are aware, the hippocampi is where all the memory, semantic memory, episodic memory, and all that stuff's at. So one of the hallmark features of Alzheimer's is the loss of memory. It kind of starts in the hippocampi. So essentially, if you look at dementia, the at the common denominator of dementia is a precipitation in cognitive performance. But when you kind of look at like the genesis of African-Americans and white Americans with the origin of dementia, you can kind of see some difference and some nuances to it. So uh, one of the things I want to do, just a little side note, was to create a chronic stress screener for African-Americans. And this is one of the things I've worked at with Dr. Goldberg at Coach because I was thinking um, if we can identify chronic stress early and we can say you have these stressors because most, if you look at the BDI, back depression inventory, BDI2, back depression, depression inventory 2, the question is a little bit straightforward. So sometimes it leads to categorical fallacies where people can be misdiagnosed. Uh, sometimes African-Americans tend to express depression differently. Uh, sometimes it comes out as um, a semantic problem or anger or sometimes, you know, um, there's a paranoia attached to it, not always, but sometimes if it, you know, gets bad enough. So it's kind of like one of those things that's saying, hey, you have these stresses, but you don't have this support system. This is the trajectory that you're on. And if we can interject early enough and say, hey, let us get you these resources and you do these things, then perhaps maybe we can curb the development of varying forms of dementia that you may experience. That sounds awesome. This is really super fascinating because... You know, where I'm at is not super diverse, mm -hmm. and there are um, black ladies in my support group, and one of the things I've noticed is they have much more difficulty because their family members are like, there's nothing wrong with me, it's all you, which is common with Alzheimer's, but they seem to have it worse. Yeah, um I can see how the chronic stress, because obviously racism is going to cause chronic stress, even if you don't actually acknowledge it like um it might be subconscious acknowledgement or i would assume that it's kind of a daily thing for a lot of people and so they just kind of well, you know they don't even acknowledge that it's affecting them and it probably is i think that's just super fascinating yeah, well you know we could take a step further and i did a research project um at what was the american or Canada, american academy Clinical neuropsychology. I just butchered the name, but it was a, it was a national conference. So called the AAIC um, or AAC. I don't know what what is it. Um, so I, I presented some research, and what I was looking at was John Henryism Alzheimer's Association International Conference. That's that's the name of the conference I presented. And so I presented some research looking at John Henryism. Are you familiar with John Henryism? Well, I'll explain no. John Henry. John Henryism uh, comes from this fable where this African-American gentleman was racing against the machine to build railroads. And even though he beat the machine because of such a laborious process, he ended up dying. And so John Henry is a, is a term that's used for people who like try to beat the odds, defy the odds and stuff like that. So we did a study with the Minority Aging Research Study, which is um, which is a data set at Rush Alzheimer's uh, Disease Center. And what we found is that 
African-American shoes ascribed to John Henryism have more cognitive impairment, but to take a step further, because we stratified it by gender, and what we found is that not African-American men, but African-American women, Black women, who ascribe to John Henryism, that is attributable to global cognitive impairment, uh, working memory, and I want to say episodic memory. So... But when you look at African-American women, what you're looking at is their intersectionality, because even as an African-American man, like I still have certain amounts of privilege and I'm not trying to have like an oppression Olympics or anything of the sort. But what I'm getting at is like sometimes as an African-American female, there's so much more so that you have to deal with. And when you take on the John Henryism, then it really becomes a little bit more prominent as you get older. I can see that. And it's interesting. I've. I laughed a little bit when you said, you know, even as a black man, you have certain privileges. And I've been in conversations with black women in my support group. It's, you know, they're black, they're women, they're, they're caregivers. I mean, it, to me, that's just like having a loaded gun pointed at your head to, to develop the disease yourself. And then I'm always harassing my husband about his quote, white male privilege, because, you know, that's <laughs> I always like to harass him about that. But yeah, between racism and sexism, I can only imagine that, you know, you're always, and then if you got a stubborn personality like mine, you'd be like, well, I'll show you people. Like when that doctor told me that, you know, the family history and being overweight and I was screwed, that was exactly what I was like. Well, I'll show you, I'm not screwed. And I can, I can, that's just really super fascinating. I'm so glad we're having this conversation. Absolutely. I mean, cause you know, it's really about raising awareness. It's like, um, it's really about raising awareness because you don't know what you don't know. A lot of times you just, not you personally, but just generally speaking, it's like people go through different things because they don't know anything and they think that this is the way that it's supposed to be. But when you start presenting options and having different things, then you can kind of formulate a better plan on how to deal with it. Uh, I was reading a research article, uh, interesting research article, and I'm saying like caregivers, particularly African-American women caregivers, like most people have uh, diurnal stress. So stress kind of cortisol, not stress, but cortisol kind of ebbs and flows throughout the day. But those caregivers, their stress remains pretty much flat for the entire day, which is stress or not. I keep saying stress. I'm sorry. But the cortisol is elevated for the better part of the day. And as you know, like when you wake up, that's kind of like when your cortisol is the highest. So that cortisol never turns down. You got to kind of think about what is cortisol. It's a steroid. So that's why sometimes people who are under like a lot of stress, that's when you see them really get bigger because there's more cortisol in their body. So, um, so when you're caregivers and you don't have any way of respite and everything falls on you, then you're right. Like, cause it, whatever, however you want to phrase it, it goes back to chronic stress and now you're susceptible to dealing, or gaining the same disease that your loved one has. So it's, it's kind of like everything kind of comes back to chronic stress. Everything comes back to it. And how can you disabuse chronic stress? And if you can find a way to disabuse chronic stress, then perhaps you can save off dementia or at least lessen the impact of it. Well, if you can, I know there's a statistic and I don't know if you know from, I don't think I post it very often on Twitter, but I'm a Rotarian mm -hmm. and last summer, 2018, when we were at the international convention, I went to a peace and brain health sure. talk. And I thought that is the strangest combination, <laughs> but it, what was interesting was, is that it came boiled down to 
Alzheimer's and dementia, we're at the very beginning of a very large tsunami that is going to overtake this globe and just, it's not going to do nice things to the entire global economy. Sure. It's, it's not going to be pretty. So thankfully there's people like you out there trying to figure out how to prevent it. But they were saying if they could prevent the onset of dementia for five years, it was like 10 million less people ended up globally having the disease overall. That's a lot of people. You know, that's there's over 16 million Americans with Alzheimer's or dementia so if you could imagine getting rid of almost all of them globally, that's like that's a huge number. So just like you said, if the, we can figure out how to reduce chronic stress, eat better, do all those things we're supposed to do. Like my mom has younger onset Alzheimer's, but if you you know if they could have pushed it off five years, it's it's been such a slow progression. It's hard to remember back when, like in 2012, she got an award and. She could talk a little bit as a thank you for getting the award, but it was obvious that it was a struggle and it was, she wasn't really sure what was going on, but she could fake it pretty well. So that's seven and a half years ago, you know, fast forward, you know, five years, if she could have been better then, how much better she'd be now. And like I said, she'll be 77 in January of 2019. So she's not that old physically, (laughs) mentally, it's not good. (laughs) Um, and then I think back, like the stresses that my grand, my maternal grandmother had. They had a business in town. It went bankrupt. She was determined to pay back all the creditors, even though she wasn't required by law to do. You know, she raised four kids, two of which were boys <laughs> that like to do like stupid boy stuff, <laughs> like throw pipes over the roof of the house. I've heard all kinds of stories. So I'm just thinking. When you look at it, it just looked like life. But when you maybe take a bigger step back, I can see how she might have been at an increased level of stress from what we might want to consider ideally normal, which when you're talking about people and brains, there is no normal, is there? <laughs> no. Yeah. So what's the next? Well, let me actually let me back up one step. Do you find in the communities of color that stigma is also a problem with uh, getting diagnosed, admitting to the problem, to the disease? Um, I, I think so. But I also think that it's changing. I mean, a lot of people, you know, Harriet Washington created an incredible book called Medical Apartheid. And it just kind of like highlights like all the, you know, bad things that have happened to people in color from the moment uh, African-Americans got off the boat to present day. Um, Harriet Washington's uh, a phenomenal author, um, but I think I think I think stigma is one thing because you you're dealing with a group of people, and as you know the baby boomers kind of pass away and different things and stuff. But you can you're dealing with a group of people who always had to prove that they belong. Like if you look at the old civil rights uh, footage and you see people walk around saying that I am a man, and you look at people who were like either maybe the first, the few, the only African-Americans at a professional job and certain things that they had to do because of the work was hard. And, you know, maybe another person thought the work was hard. Well, yeah, of course the work is hard, but if 
an African-American thought the work was hard. And granted, again, we're not talking about absolutisms, but, you know, they might have thought the work was hard. Then it's like, well, this is why you don't belong here. This is why you don't fit. So you don't have the opportunity to not know or to not understand or to be sick or to be all this other thing because you're always on the front line uh, trying to stay to show that you belong and stuff like that. So I definitely think that stigma is something that carries on because I think it's a learned behavior. So even after you retire and even after you do all these things, you don't want people to think that, okay, I can't handle this and I can't do this. So something that I used to say to some of the community outreach is it's like you're worried about what people might say about you, but if you're in the ground or if you had a major stroke or you have whatever, people are still going to talk about you. So they're going to talk about you regardless. You might as well be in a position where at least you're getting help. Um, also, that makes, that's awesome. That's an awesome way to put it to people. Also, I mean, sometimes it's hard getting African-American men to research. And if you think about, not research, but to the doctor, well, research and a doctor, but if you think about how there's a cardiovascular component to uh, Alzheimer's, and if you're African-American man and you grew up through the Emmett Till, the George Stinney, the Scottsboro Boys, and all this other stuff, one of the first things that happens when men have cardiovascular problems is that they can get an erection. So one of the things that they don't want to do is go to like a physician that doesn't look like them because there's this hyper-masculinity ethos. So sometimes that keeps African-American men away from, keeps them away from, you know, going to help and getting the help that they deserve and different things and stuff like that. Because it'd be hard if you're African-American and maybe talking to a white female doctor or talking to somebody who maybe doesn't understand. Or sometimes it's just this knowledge gap. Um, you know, so funny because like a lot of times when you do a job, people go through your social media to see if you have any type of drug paraphernalia, what are you saying? But something that some people don't do is love to say, how many people of color friends do you have? Are you comfortable with people of color? Because sometimes people... Uh, who aren't accustomed to working with people of color. They don't know how to necessarily treat them. And um, it was an article, I think maybe 2016, 2017, and the University of Virginia, they did a little survey and they found that their doctoral student, not doctoral, but their mid-school students thought African-Americans had a higher pain tolerance than the other groups of people and stuff like that. So African-Americans went through more pain. Um, so you start thinking about stuff like that, and that's just the one that you know about, but there's other things that you don't know about, and those are some of the things that keep people away from medicine. So it's not so much that the problem exists, but it's like, how do you resolve the problem? And I think one of the biggest ways to resolve the problem is to be able to have people who reflect the communities that are served because people, and, that, and that's something that's always worked well for me because when I would do my community outreach, yeah, I'm a doctoral student and yeah, I'm all these other things, but I get my haircut like at the same place. Like I go to the same grocery store, I go to the same church. So you see me, so I can't give you bad information that disappear because we rest our head at the same place. So once you foster that trust, then it's easier to get people to say because they're like, well, we trust you. We do all these other things. Um, so that's, that's, how we can help resolve the problem. It's really about reflecting the people who are served or being present. And like, that's another big thing is like being present because I was, I was at this university and they were talking about like, yeah, we'll have these grand event, but then we won't have any participation until we have our next grand event. So it's like, you have to be in the community whether you have something to give or not, but being present, that's how you foster trust. That makes perfectly good sense. And I like what you said about, you know, go through somebody's social media to see if they've got friends that are different ethnicities so that 
you kind of get a sense whether or not they can interact. I don't want to say appropriately. That might not be quite the right word, but it's close enough. (laughs) I guess the right word is not coming. And like I said, I'm in a pretty non-diverse. There's a lot of Hispanics where I live Mm -hmm. because it was an agricultural only town. I like to call it the agriburbs because it's, we're definitely a bedroom community of San Francisco and the Silicon Valley. Although man, driving from here to Silicon Valley is a great way to kill yourself. (laughs) How about chronic stress? There aren't a lot of Asians or blacks. So if you look at my social media, it's probably pretty white, but (laughs) my rotary group has got, it's fairly, it's as diverse as it could be for our town. Sure, sure. I never, ever thought of that it's very oh my gosh this is very enlightening today oh, yeah, well, I can help. But, you know I was, I was reading an article and this is something that's interesting just to take it just a little bit further um when you deal with african-americans hispanics and muslims a lot of times the whole patient doctor care centers on relationship so it's not did you go to uc berkeley or did you go to harvard or did you go to like a big name stuff like that and i'm not catching aspersions on any of those fine institutions but what i'm saying is that it's like can we have a relationship because if i don't have a relationship all the other accolades i don't care about because i'm not opening up and i'm not sharing with you whereas other groups of people sometimes just predicated on the name brand you went to this institution you're board certified you have this stuff and so sometimes it creates like a point of contention because people who aren't accustomed to that they think all oh, this person is being despondent on purpose or just being bad and so forth so but it's really not that but it's like can you establish a trust and i remember being at emory and emory's like this renowned hospital and we would see different types of people, amazing faculty and stuff like that. And more times than not, African-American people that would come to me, they would say, can we trust the people here? Can we, can we, can we, can I open up and can I trust them? A lot of times it's just predicated on, you know, Chris, will you engage with us? You acknowledged us when we were sitting down. You just didn't say something when you needed us, but so we trust you. So can, um, you know, that sort of thing. That's it's interesting because I could not tell you where any of my mom's doctors went to school. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming, and maybe this is not smart, but I'm assuming that they're all well trained and they're all they're all going to do what they're supposed to do. I love my mom's neurologist because she treats me like a person, whereas the general physician that I've been dealing with with for my mom. I get the impression, and he'd probably be really offended to hear this because I bet you he doesn't mean it, but I feel like he treats me like the Uber driver. Yeah, well, because it's like just drop everything, bring mom in. We think she's got kidney stones. Oh, no, it's not. It's it's like, dude, I have a life. Yeah, there's no I am not for poor behavior. Yeah, I just, I think it's he's so focused on her. Mm-hmm that he forgets that there's this whole other component, which is me. And it's, it, uh, I acknowledge that her health issues are a priority, but you can't discount my life too, because then you're just going to cause health issues for me too. It's been a struggle, but I, when we went to her neurologist back in September, as we were leaving the, the appointments this year were about six months apart. And she was quite surprised at the decline in my mom. It was more dramatic than she was expecting. And as we're leaving, you know, my mom was just, displaying some challenging 
behaviors, which behaviors is really not the word people like to use, but there's not a better one. Sure. And she said, you know, you're doing a really good job. Just hang in there. I mean, she just kind of gave me an girl, and that helped a lot because by the time you, you know, you pick up mom, you take her to the doctor, the neurologist is always behind schedule, which I knew. So I told the office staff, how, how behind is she? going to take mom across the parking lot for something to drink, maybe a little snack. And then we'll walk back over when at the appropriate time. And they were all good with that. So, you know, it's stressful enough. So for her just to give that little pat on the verbal pat on the back was just, it helped a whole lot. Whereas my, the general physician. But you know what, that's, a, that's just, the type of thing that makes people come back. I mean, cause essentially like that's like the second phase is for people to come back. I mean, I mean, that's it. If I don't feel appreciated, if I don't feel welcome, and if you think about what we were discussing a little bit earlier with the whole um, take two trains and a bus to get someplace, mm-hmm. and I do that cumbersome process, I'm going to take two trains and a bus to get back home. But when I get there, I don't feel welcome. I don't feel encouraged. Uh, I, don't, I don't care about the endowment. I don't care about your accolades. I don't care about your research. I'm not coming back. But that's like, basic business etiquette you know mm-hmm. yeah that makes perfectly good sense and um mom hasn't gone back to the general physician since well we've been we did a bunch of ultrasounds she's got a growth next to one kidney and he wants me to have it like ultrasounded regularly i'm like for what he's like well it could cause kidney failure okay i'm familiar with that that's what got my dad my dad was diabetic his donated kidney was not doing well because he didn't ever eat the way he was supposed to. So I'm familiar with that process. (laughs) I'm not, and I think it's a little faster than the Alzheimer's process. So telling me, well, she could have kidney failure is not, I think he's trying to scare me. It was like, nope, doesn't scare me. Been there, done that. Been on that ride. (laughs) (laughs) It's not as scary as they advertise. (laughs) Really, I really appreciate this opportunity, and hopefully I was able to provide some really good insight just towards, you know, health disparity, Alzheimer's, dementia, and not only that it exists, but how we can just find resolution towards finding solutions, you know. I agree, because, like, you, you've enlightened me a lot, and even though I'm not, you know, in the community of color by any stretch of the imagination, <laughs> what you've said, you know, it, it helps me understand everybody a little better and understand the disease a little better. So hopefully it's done that for everybody else. And I appreciate you throwing out that. I wish I could be on somebody's podcast on Twitter. Well, you've made it to the end of another episode. Thank you so much for joining me. If you found this episode helpful and informative, please give us a five-star rating and review on Apple iTunes This is how new people will find us. Also, be sure to follow us on social media. All of our accounts are linked in the show notes. And as always, I will be in your ears again next Tuesday.